0: So as most of you know, when, when I first entered into ministry, Mindy and I were part of a church out in Arlington, Virginia. And one of the first responsibilities that I was given when I went on staff of that church was to oversee sort of the mercy ministry of our church. And so we had a deacon of mercy ministry and I worked closely with him as a church plant. We wanted to bless Arlington, Virginia and the D.C. area. And we were a young church, and so we were excited. We had a lot of ambition. We had a lot of ideas. We had a lot of energy, and we were blessed with resources. And so we were like, hey, let's go. Let's love people well. Let's bless people well, especially those who were in need. And early on, there was a, an individual who reached out to the church. This was a guy that was trying to get back on his feet after having spent some time in prison. And, and he really needed some financial support as he had gotten a job, but was, didn't have a place to stay yet. And so he just needed us to kind of front him some money to help him get established. And so I started working with this guy and struck up a, a friendship with him. And we were able to set him up with, with, a, with a room and, and pay his first month's rent so that he could work a month and, and build up some cash reserves so that he could begin paying rent. And so I helped him get a room, helped him move in, helped him get established. I was feeling really good, like, hey, we're really helping this guy. We're really doing this. Well, shortly after he moves in, I started getting phone calls from his landlady saying that, uh, he's not exactly the most responsible tenant. Coming and going at odd hours, bringing people, being loud. And so there was this kind of pattern of irresponsibility starting to surface. Then come the end of the month, he doesn't have the money to pay next month's rent. He hadn't worked enough to build up the rent that he needed to pay. And so what seemed like the situation we really helping somebody started to—the wheel started to fall off. And I was caught with the fact, man— what I thought was us helping a guy get established and move towards this, this pattern of independence and, and really get to a place in life where he was functioning well, we we're actually enabling some dysfunctional patterns. And I don't think I or, or the other people involved were particularly naive about things. But, but here's what we learned. In any church where you want to patiently walk with people, where you want to have this grace-filled engagement with others, where you want to love them through their pain and their sin, it's very easy, if we're not careful, to begin to enable people. It's very easy for us to minimize sin in such a way that we allow patterns of sin and dysfunction to continue, rather than walking in a way that people actually are transformed. And so last week we saw from 1 Timothy 5, that as the church, we're called to disciple one another. We're called to teach one another. We're called to correct one another, love one another, and care for one another as family. And as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're committed to each other's growth. We're committed to caring for one another. And we do this with grace and with love. But as the back half of 1 Timothy 5 shows us that if we're not careful, we can start to enable one another. Like our good intentions, our grace-filled hearts can actually lead to enabling one another to persist in sin. And so 1 Timothy 5 gives us a glimpse into the danger. It gives us some categories related to the danger of enabling. Because the solution isn't to just all of a sudden become heavy-headed and harsh. Where, hey, the moment you step out of line, we come down on you hard and you lose all opportunity, we shun you, or we shame you, or we just bring these hard consequences down. Like some churches, that's like, hey, we don't want to enable anybody, so let's just go hard. That's not the solution either. And so we need the wisdom of God. We need 1 Timothy 5 to to speak into the situation to help us understand what grace-filled discipleship looks like, what grace-filled care looks like, that doesn't lead to enabling. So if we see 1 Timothy as really a blueprint for a healthy church, here's the main points from this passage this morning. A healthy church community disciples one another. It does not enable one another. A healthy church community disciples one another. It does not enable one another. And so there's three points that I want to unpack here for us from this passage. The first is the goal of discipleship and care. The second is looking at the conditions for discipleship and care. And third, the confidence that we need for discipleship and care. So let's first talk about the goal of discipleship, the goal of care. Whenever we enter into this kind of situation with people, what is the goal? Well, this passage challenges us and some of our sensibilities because it puts conditions on care. aren't we supposed to care for everyone? Shouldn't our care come with this no-strings-attached mentality? Isn't that how Jesus cared for people? Well, those are very good questions, and they're things that we need to wrestle with. But if we're not careful, we'll let the punch of this passage be softened a little bit. We'll we'll, we'll gloss over some of the the more pointed aspects of verses 9 through 16. And so we need to look square in the face of what these these verses are saying, and then make some application. So let's let's jump in and look at what 9 through 16 is sort of addressing. So the specific issue, really, in all of 1 Timothy 5— is caring for widows in the church. So from last week, we looked at verses three through eight. And if you remember that, the apostle Paul lays down the stipulation that widows should be first cared for by their family. Like if if a woman who has uh, kids or grandkids that can support her, they are the first, they are obligated, they are responsible because they are her family. But if she doesn't have family, then the church is supposed to step in and care for her. And if that is the case, Verses 9 and 10 sort of lay out, here are the conditions for the church's care for her. Verses 9 and 10 read, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So first there's an age limit, and we're going to talk about it here in a second, but essentially... Uh, such an age where the prospects for her of getting remarried are pretty much zero. But the bigger point that Paul is pointing to here is the character. Like the character of this woman reflects someone who is godly, who's devoted to the church, who's devoted to other people. Her life is demonstrated through good works. So she's been faithful that when her husband was alive, she was sexually faithful to her husband. She brought up children faithfully. She's shown hospitality to people. She's cared for people in their affliction and their suffering. And she's devoted herself to loving people. And so there is this picture of a woman that the church is caring for that very much reflects godliness. Hey, if a woman is of a particular age, has no one else to help her, and she is godly, church, step in and care for her. Now, it would be very easy for us to think this way. Paul's describing a woman who has earned the right to be cared for. And so we sort of think, hey, she proved herself worthy, and so the church is now caring for her because she sort of earned that care. She's part of the deserving poor. But that's a little bit of too simplistic a reading of this passage. There's something much more going on here than just saying this woman has sort of earned her care in the church. See, what's going on here is we have a picture of a godly woman who, before the need for care was even a thing, lived her life to glorify Christ lived her life in the church in such a way that Jesus was the center of her life. And so this has nothing to do with earning. This woman wasn't living her life so she could earn care from the church, a nice retirement plan from the church. This wasn't the approach. This is just a woman who lived godly because she loved Jesus and she loved other people. And so when this woman was in this position of need, the church steps in and says, hey, we're gonna care for her because she really is our spiritual mom. She belongs to the family of God. But here's the effect this has. When we care for her, when we support her, that godliness that she exudes, that godliness that she brings to the church is perpetuated throughout the church. Because if this woman isn't pushed into the corner where she's having to fight for survival, if we're caring for her and loving for her, what is she freed up to do? Disciple, love, care, serve in the church. She can have an impact and an influence so that the church becomes more healthy and more godly. So this isn't about a woman earning a place and earning sort of the care of the church. This is about the church caring for someone so that they may have a positive impact and a godly impact in the church. The church's care should lead to more godliness. That's the principle underneath this, this instruction from, from Paul. Anytime we care for someone, anytime we're leading towards discipleship with someone, the fruit of that, the point of that, the goal of that is always more godliness. And this point is reinforced when we see the contrast Paul creates in verses 11 through 13. But refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ... They desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. This is, this is going hard. <laughs> I mean, this is, this, is a, this is a strong statement against a particular type of lifestyle. Now, here's what's happening. Because there's something a little bit unique going on in the first century church that really isn't part of our experience. So in the early church to be a widow, to be enrolled in this care that Paul is talking about, was almost kind of like an office in the church. Now, it wasn't an official office, but here's what happened. For For a widow to receive care from the church, they entered into sort of this commitment. I'm being cared for. Like, I don't have a family to take care of me. I don't have a family that I'm responsible for. I don't have another job. So my life now is devoted to the cause of Christ, My life is now devoted to the mission of the church. And some scholars even believe that there was a vow that these widows would take to say, hey, I vow that my time, my resources, my energy belong to Christ and the church solely. And so for a younger widow to take this vow could be potentially dangerous because what would happen? They would desire to marry. They were young enough where they could still get married, still have kids, and that desire would cause them to break that vow. It would cause them to say, you know what? I, I vowed that I'm gonna commit full-time to the, to the church community and serving Christ in this way. But now that I wanna get married, no, I'm actually gonna break that vow. So Paul recognizes, hey, that's a real temptation for younger widows. So don't even take the vow. Don't even go there. Don't even enter into sort of that life stage because better to not do that than to do it and break the vow. And so it's kind of a, a unique situation going on here. But the bigger point that Paul's drawing out is the character of these widows, the character of one receiving care. Because what would happen is some of these widows, when they were cared for by the church and they didn't have any other responsibilities, what did it lead them to? Being idle, gossiping, being busybodies, not perpetuating godliness in the church, not perpetuating more health in the church, not leading to more discipleship in the church, rather division and sin. And so the care of the church, the discipleship of the church, should not lead to ungodliness. It should not enable ungodliness. And that's the challenge the church in Ephesus was facing. Was their care leading to godliness or enabling ungodliness? Because if the goal of care, if the goal of discipleship is godliness, not ungodliness, then we have to ask ourselves, what are the conditions, what are the structures that are in place when we disciple and care for people, are they actually leading to godliness, or are they enabling ungodliness? And really, First Timothy five shows us that caring for someone's practical needs is greater than just "Hey, I'm giving you financial resources." Caring for someone's practical needs is more than just "Hey, you're no longer hungry" or "Hey, you you uh, can pay your bill now." It's godliness. It's deeper faith in Christ. It's transformation. And this follows the path that we've seen from the beginning. So if you go to Acts 2, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to just quickly show Like in Acts 2, the church caring for people has always been wrapped up in its mission to make disciples. So this is what we read in Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here we have a snapshot of the church. Here's what the life of the church looked like. They devoted themselves to teaching, so this is the apostles' teaching. They, they learned the content of the gospel. They learned the content of the scriptures, but then they went and lived it out. They were committed to fellowshipping with one another. They were committed to eating with one another, being spending time together. They were committed to praying with one another. They were committed to sharing the gospel and blessing their city together. And they had favor. And through that, God was saving people. And notice, they would sell possessions and care for those and give proceeds to any who had need. That was happening within the context of the mission of the church. So care and discipleship are connected. They're inseparable. They're not separate things with separate goals. They have the same goal, the same purpose. Care is but an extension of a part of discipleship. And so our care should always have the same end goal in mind. Godliness, faith in Christ and godliness and so I want to emphasize this point because it's very tempting for us to pull the two apart. It's very tempting for us to pull care and discipleship apart. And so we can be content with just merely meeting people's practical needs but never taking it any further. We can be content with merely just helping someone pay their bills but never entering into discipleship relationship with them in order that godliness may be produced, faith in Christ may be produced, The same thing with emotional needs. Sometimes all we do is just sort of offer support. Hey, that's important. We need to support one another. We need to be there for one another. But if it never moves past that, we've missed the point of care. If our influence, if our relationship, if our friendship, if our support isn't leading to faith in Christ and godliness, then we've missed the point. The goal of discipleship, the goal of care is something far bigger than just merely meeting needs, is to create disciples of Jesus who have deep faith in Christ and walk in transformed godly lives. So that is the goal. That is the the, the point that Paul is driving here is that the goal of care should produce godliness in the church. And when it does not, there are problems. And so this is what leads us to conditions for discipleship and care. So if 1 Timothy points us to the truth that care is inseparable from discipleship, then we need to understand what are the conditions for care and discipleship. And what I mean by conditions, I mean structures and methods and ways of being the church. And do those things actually lead towards godliness? Now, we need to be careful because we can fall into this trap, or maybe even subtly mistake something. When we use conditions— We're not saying, hey, someone has to earn their place in this church. Well, we're not saying someone has to clean themselves up, get themselves put together, then they can come in, and then they're worthy of our discipleship and our care. That's not the gospel. That's that's not the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, come as you are in your selfishness, your sin, your brokenness, your hot mess, and receive the grace of Jesus. There's no performing. There's no get yourself cleaned up and earn this. It's just bring all that you are to all that Christ is and receive his grace. What this also points us to, 1 Timothy 5, hey, we're family. We love each other. We're committed to each other, not because any of us have earned it, because none of us have. We're committed because Christ has made us family. And just as you care for your immediate family, you care for your spiritual family. Just as it would be horrible neglect to leave your mom or your grandma abandoned when you could help her, it's horrible neglect when we abandon our brothers, sisters in Christ and we do not care for them and serve them and love them. And so there's a call on us, church, all of us. This isn't just for pastors. This isn't just for deacons. This isn't just for gospel community leaders. It's for all of us. We're all called. If you belong to Jesus, if you are his disciple, you're called to care for and disciple your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this isn't about earning. This isn't about coming to a particular place where now you're worthy of me stepping into your life and helping you. At the same time, discipleship itself is a call. It's a call to faith. It's a call to life in Christ. It's a call to commitment to the community of Christ. The call of discipleship is to put off your old self in the sin and the selfishness and the rebellion and put on a new self made in the image of Christ that walks in the beauty of godliness the call of discipleship is for us to enter into each other's lives and shape each other and mold each other by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we look and act more like Jesus. To embrace this means I want to embrace a lifestyle where people are speaking into me. They're, they're engaging me so that I am changing and being transformed. And so the, what God's word means by conditions of discipleship, what, we're, what we want to understand as far as what this means for the church, is that our discipleship structures, like the way we teach, the way we worship on Sundays, the way that we counsel, the way that we care for each other, the way we meet needs, the way we correct one another, the way we spend time together, all of that pushes us towards godliness, pushes us towards greater faith in Jesus Christ. All of the conditions, the life, the methods, the way that we do things here are they producing godliness or are they leaving gaps where we can enable one another? Are our methods of discipleship, are the conditions that we live in as a church producing godliness or enabling? Because Paul calling Timothy not to enroll these younger widows who are living ungodly lives wasn't about merit. It was about the effect that it had on the church. It was about establishing a structure within the church, establishing conditions in the church where if people didn't walk in godliness, the conditions pushed against them. They were rebuked, they were corrected. Something stopped them in their tracks to say, hey, we're not going to enable you in your ungodliness. Turn and follow Christ, walk in godliness. That is the thrust, that is the heart of this passage. And look, Jesus set this example for us. Jesus established a pattern of discipleship, conditions for discipleship, that reflected moving towards godliness. Now, was Jesus loving and gracious, and did he heal people? Yes. He healed people who weren't worthy of being healed. He loved people. But if you read the Gospels, you notice that when Jesus healed people, the point was always, believe in me. Like, I'm proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is present. It's here. It's arrived. Believe in me. Put your faith in me. And when people didn't respond that way, he hit the brakes. Like, he didn't perform miracles in his own hometown because people didn't believe in him. He did miracles in several cities, but then when there wasn't repentance, he called down curses on those cities I mean, he put the brakes on those things. It's like, hey, if the miracles that had been done in this town were done in other towns, they would have repented. You're not repenting. And then you read in John 6, where after Jesus feeds the multitude, they start following him around. And the reason they do is not because they think he's the Messiah. It's because he's their meal ticket. And he stops them and he says, hey, look. The point of my mission is not physical bread. It's spiritual bread. They're like, well, what are you talking about, Jesus? And then he goes on to talk about, hey, you need to feast on me. That freaked them out and they left. And so even in the ministry of Jesus, we see him establishing conditions and structures that were intended to lead to godliness His care, his love, his teaching was meant to produce godliness. And it's the same for us. The conditions of discipleship and care, man, they should call us out. They should not enable us in our sin. If I'm walking in sin, if you're walking in sin, the conditions and the methods of this church should call us out. They should correct us. They should say, hey, stop what you're doing. We're not going to enable ungodliness here. We want to move you towards faith and repentance and godliness. Man, we should expect that when we walk in sin, people will correct us. We should expect that there are accountability structures that could be put in place. We should expect that boundaries may be set. And I understand. Oh, do I understand that sometimes this is scary. Because some of you, you've been in churches where this was done so heavy-handedly and so harshly that the talk of accountability and boundaries and correction gets you a little itchy behind the collar. But look. Look. So many things that are beautiful and good in this world get abused. And we don't give up on them. Food, marriage, entertainment, great, wonderful, beautiful gifts, and they get abused. But the solution isn't to throw them out. The solution is to fight for the correct version. Fight for the beautiful version. Fight for those things that are going to produce godliness. This church If our structures, if other conditions of this church are not producing godliness, then here's what happens. At best, we enable each other just to be superficial. We enable each other just to kind of hover at the superficial spirituality, never going deeper in faith in Christ. At worst, it allows us to persist in destructive sin. And so we need to be careful. We need to be intentional. We need to be purposeful that the structures And the conditions of discipleship in this church are healthy and produce godliness. And so if we are going to do that, if we're going to lean into this call in 1 Timothy 5 to care for one another and disciple one another in a way that leads to godliness and not enabling, we're going to need some confidence for this because this is hard. This is messy. This is difficult. And really, at the root of pretty much all enabling is fear. Like things go sideways. I enter into enabling other people when I, there's an underground kind of fear that's driving me and fear that's motivating me. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to take a few minutes and just let the Holy Spirit sort of do some heart work on us and, and reflect on some of the ways that we can let fear cause us, cause us to enable each other. And let's just be honest here. We're all in the same boat here. Like I put myself in the same boat here. I'm going to call myself out on some of this stuff just as much. But let's let's let the spirit do some work here as we reflect on these things. First, fear can cause us to enable one another this way. We control one another. We never allow someone to sort of stand on their own two feet spiritually. Whether that's a fear that, hey, I'm going to fail someone or a fear, fear that, I'm not being loving enough. So basically what I do is I try to micromanage their spiritual life. I try to control all of the ways that they live their life so that they don't make any mistakes and they never have to learn what it means to trust in Jesus. Man, I'm fearful because I could lose control. I don't like what happens when this person is sort of a mess. I don't like what's going on in my soul. We can also be fearful in a way that leads us to never establish healthy boundaries. So we're always in each other's mess, always, always sort of up in each other's business, like the busybody thing. And what that ends up doing is it makes us dependent on each other more than it is on Jesus. Now listen, we need each other. We, we, don't, we don't isolate ourselves from one another, but we're not Jesus. We're not the Savior. I cannot change you. I can love you, I can help you, I can point you to Christ, but I cannot change you. And if my discipleship makes you more dependent upon me than Jesus, I am enabling you. And so there is a fear that will cause us to enter into people's lives that way rather than establishing a healthy relationship that says, hey, I'm gonna help you this way, but there are, there's a lot of things I can't do for you. You gotta take that to Jesus. You gotta do that on your own. You gotta learn what it means to stand on your own two feet. Also, we, fee- we, we can fear being seen as harsh and unloving with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe we're fighting the ghosts of a heavy-handed parents or a heavy-handed pastor or a legalistic church, and we don't want to be that thing. And so we never really press people in the ways that we should. We never really call out sin as deeply as we should. Like, we'll, we'll hit the big ones, like when it's obvious someone's in sin, like pornography or adultery or anger or drunkenness, okay, that's obvious. Yeah, I need to say something. But when it's the more subtle sins that really probably affect us even more, I don't want to press in there. Ah, it's too harsh. Ah, it's too heavy-handed. That's unloving. So I'll never call out passivity. Passivity. Like, like I'm never going to call out maybe, oh man, my, my, my friend in my gospel community, I'm a little concerned with their media habits, but that's probably just preference, right? Like I don't want to be legalistic, so I'm not going to ever engage that and question that. Or this one, you know, everybody sort of has a different parenting model and I kind of notice the way that this person parents and they don't really dis- discipline their kid, but I'm not going to say anything. It's just a matter of preference, you know. We all kind of do things differently, and we never actually press in and say, "Hey, is there actually sin involved here? It, 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 should, should I actually enter in and, and care about what my brother and sister are doing and, and press that?" Like, let me be honest with you, this is huge for me. Like you guys know, Mindy and I's story, we we infertility. We don't have kids. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to admit that sometimes that gets a little weird for me as your pastor because this church is full of kids. There's as, many as kids as adults in this church. And so sometimes it's hard for me. Do, do I say anything? Like, I, like I'm not a parent myself, so should I say something? Because I had this fear in my mind that you're going to go, well, you don't have kids, how would you know? And so sometimes I observe, I'm going, you know, I'm not a parent, but I'm pretty sure that's not wise. I'm pretty sure that's probably sin right there, but I don't know if I'm going to say anything. That's fear. That is fear. Now, some of you are probably thinking, oh, great, is he talking about me? (laughs) Relax. I probably am. (sighs) But it's okay. But do we understand that when we're driven by fear, that we short-circuit discipleship. We're not actually pressing in in ways that we need to to love each other, to care for each other, to to get into the deeper issues of the heart where things like this, they they take root and they have effect. Like there's no such thing as a sin that doesn't affect you and create dysfunction in your life. And so we should care about these things. And look, there is legitimate space for differences and preferences. But let's sort those things out through actually engaging each other in discipleship actively loving each other and questioning and and, and getting inside those things with each other rather than just sort of passively letting them slide. Like I would would rather you sort of arrive at this place of, hey, we just have, we see things differently, having like engaged each other in conversation and engage each other in a discipleship sharpening way than just sort of say, well, I'm not going to really go there. That's not loving each other. That's not being family. That's going passive, church. That's fearful, and that leads to enabling. Fear also is behind our tendency to value authenticity above repentance. This is another hard one for us, because our culture screams the value of authenticity. And in many ways, hey, authenticity is good. Authenticity is beautiful, because it's hard to let people know you're a mess. It really is. It's a hard to sort of just say, hey, I'm a mess. I'm a sinner, even though we all know we're sinners. And so authenticity is a good thing. When you're in this place where, hey, I'm going to bring this stuff into the light. I'm going to confess this. I'm going to own this. I'm going to let people know this is where I am. That's good. We should celebrate authenticity. But don't confuse authenticity with repentance. Authenticity is not the highest good. At best, it's an incomplete tool. Like it only leads you so far. We need to be calling each other to repentance. We need to be calling each other not to just bring sin into the light, but to repent and turn from those sins. If we're not doing that, if we're just simply settling for authenticity, both ourselves and and in other people, we're going to be a community that just talks a lot about our sin, but never sees the power of Jesus Christ transform us. And so we need to start... Thinking through it this way. How often am I saying this? Well, I'm struggling with this. Rather than saying, I need to repent of this. That's what it means to press in and disciple one another, care for one another in a way that leads to godliness. And here's another way this plays out. And I want to tread very carefully here. But so often in our efforts to empathize with one another through pain, through suffering, maybe we're, we're battling serious anxiety. Our empathy leads us to be present with people, and that's great. Our empathy leads us to be understanding and patient with one another. But we'll never actually press into the ways that that trial and that suffering and some of that anxiety is actually shot through with sin. Like, look, I have suffered a ton in my life. And I can tell you, every single time there was sin shot through in that too. Like, I don't suffer imperfection. I, didn't, I wasn't this holy, perfect angel in my suffering. I needed someone to speak truth to me. Yes, I needed someone to love me. I needed someone to be empathetic with me. But I thank God for those men and those women who spoke truth to me in the midst of that and pushed me towards deeper faith in Jesus. And, and this is tough too. This is messy. This is hard because it takes wisdom to know when to speak and when to shut up. It takes wisdom to know when to actually bring these corrections and press. And so, yes, be wise. Pray for the Spirit to show you when when you need to speak. But don't be fearful to enter into these things. Don't be fearful to step in and say, hey, I know you're suffering. I know you're anxious. I know there is pain here. And I want to love you through that. And I'm with you in that no matter what. But, But can I show you, hey, look, you're not trusting the Lord here. Like there's some sin going on here that I know the Lord is trying to draw out because suffering is always about sanctification. It's always about training us in godliness. And so let's help each other in that. Let's push each other in that. Amen? But let's not just think that we are the enablers. So often we want to be enabled. We we don't want to lean into discipleship structures. We don't want to lean into conditions. We don't want to be that widow that's told, hey, you're living in ungodliness, and so this this isn't going to fly. And so we'll live our lives in such a way where we disconnect from the structures. We'll disconnect from those things that are meant to push us towards godliness. And so what are some of the ways that you can live your life in such a way that you're actually being enabled, you're letting people enable you? I, 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 Mindy and I, I face this all the time. Like, I'm cool when she just sort of points out that I'm, I'm grumpy. Like, oh, yeah, I know I'm grumpy. I kind of have a bad attitude. But when she presses me on my procrastination, ah, I don't like that. I, I want her to enable me in that. I'll back off when she's going there. Like, like, I'll let some of you know, you know, some of the sins that I face. I don't want any of you to know I'm a control freak. Some of you are like, oh, I know you're a control freak. Like, I want you all to enable me in that. Like, like, I, I, I'll hold that back. I won't let people in my gospel community or let certain structures or let, let Paul like, hit me with that. And so how are we doing this? How are we living in such a way that, man, we're, we're being enabled. We're letting people enable us. And so in all of these things, all of this fear, do these things define your engagement with others? Do you you see yourself in any of this? Do you see where fear is keeping you from deeper godliness, deeper faith, deeper transformation? Do you see where fear is actually keeping you from deeper community that is the means of your transformation? So how do we break free of this fear? And this is what I want to end our time with this. How do we break free of this fear? How do we get past the things that cause us to be enablers and be enabled? Well, look, when we fall into fear, here's what we've missed. Here's what we've forgotten. That the power of the gospel is more powerful than any sin. We've missed that Jesus Christ has come to transform us. We've missed that the Holy Spirit lives in us if we belong to Christ. And so, church, we move past fear. We move past enabling when we remember the power of the gospel, when we remember that things like grace and forgiveness and mercy and love are all shot through with redemptive fire. They, leave, they don't leave us unchanged. They don't leave us untouched. No, these things have effect in our lives. And so I want to ask First City Church, do we have confidence in the power of the gospel? Do we have confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us And our brothers and sisters in our world, do we live in such a way where we're saying, yes, the gospel changes everything? Because when that happens, we're not ruled by fear. When that happens, we don't enable one another. We begin to disciple and care for one another in a way that leads to godliness. And here's what this looks like. It means having a high view of confession and repentance and a high view of transformation because at the heart of the message of the gospel is repent and turn from sin. It's let go of your sin, let go of your selfishness, let go of your rebellion and turn to Christ. Confess those things, not so you can beat yourself up, not so you can be condemned and not so you can sort of hang your head that, oh, I'm such a miserable sinner, but so you can be set free so that you can experience transformation through the gospel. There's this wonderful promise in 1 John If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. That's the promise of the gospel. That's a high view of confession and repentance because we believe at the end of that is transformation and freedom. Look, sin is a persistent problem. Sin is a pernicious problem. something we always face, we're always wrestling with. And we can get used to it. We can sort of just settle in. Well, this is how I am. This is how I'm going to be. I'm just going to settle for it. We can beat ourselves up over it. We, we, we can kind of have this kind of condemnation mentality of like, I'm just a miserable sinner. I'm horrible. And it just shrinks our spiritual life. Or we can say, no, Jesus Christ came to transform me and change me. The power of the gospel is not defeat. The power of the gospel is not settling with sin. The power of the gospel is not just, hey, let me just get comfortable with this. It's no, God has done something to set me free and transform me. Church, do you believe this? That he who began a good work in you will complete it? Do you believe that promise? Like, look, I know we are gonna face sin the rest of our lives. Until Christ comes back and restores his good creation, we are gonna face our sin. And some sin hangs on for a long time. Some sin we will battle our entire lives, but the promise is he will complete the work he started. The promise is that he will transform you. He will change you. He is changing you. Do you hold on to that promise? Does that define you more than your sin or your suffering or your anxiety? Church, do you also believe that for freedom Christ has set you free? that Christ died and was resurrected and pours out his spirit on you for freedom. If we hold to that, we're not going to enable one another. We're not going to fear pressing in and discipling and caring for one another in a way that has teeth, because we're going to be confident in the power of God. We're going to be confident that God is changing us and changing our brothers and sisters. We can lean into the structures and the conditions of discipleship and the methods of the church that we have put in place so that we can grow in godliness. And we have confidence in the Lord. We're not afraid to correct and rebuke. We're not afraid to, to bring up things like, hey, I'm really concerned about the, the things you watch on TV. Hey, I'm really concerned about the way you spend your money. Hey, I'm really concerned about the way you parents. Not because I want to condemn you, because I want to see you transformed. I want to see the gospel define your life and make you more godly. Church, let that be our hearts. Let that be our confidence. Let's love each other as family. Let's commit to each other's care, commit to each other's growth. But let's not do this with fear. Let's not do this with enabling one another. Let's not do this with low expectations of God's power. Rather, let's have confidence in the Lord confidence in his means of grace to us, confidence that he is at work in the structures of this church. And let's embrace that call to care for and disciple one another towards godliness. Amen.